Welcome to the very first episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. My name is Eirik Storsen, and I'm an Old Norse philologist. If you have no idea what that is, it basically means that I study Vikings and medieval Scandinavian culture and religion, mainly through the textual sources. You may be familiar with the Icelandic sagas, the Eddic poems, and the colorful myths of the Norse gods, but there is so much more. There are literally hundreds of Norse texts, most of which are entirely overlooked in public discourse, and many have never even been translated at all. There are enough sagas, poetry, law codes, genealogies, scientific treatises, letters, and runic inscriptions in Old Norse to keep you busy for a lifetime. Additionally, there is so much exciting research going on that never reaches the masses. I cannot bring it all to you but I can present case studies and the many strange, funny, and inspiring stories that are otherwise untold outside of dusty university conference rooms. As such, the object of Brute Norse is to shine a different light on Vikings and Norse culture and to bridge the gap between public and academia. Though perhaps filtered through my personal love of all things that are strange and mysterious. Today we have an interview with Leszek Gardewa, he is a Polish archaeologist and assistant professor with the University of Rzeszow. He also boasts an impressive publication list containing several books and dozens of articles, specializing in strange mortuary practices and the ambivalence of magic and ritual. I had the pleasure of seeing him talk at the University of Bergen recently on the subject of death and ambiguity in the Viking Age. He agreed to join me for some park bench musings on magic, ethics, and the archaeology of emotion. So without further ado, here comes the interview. I've uh, got a special guest here, Leszek Gardeo. Uh, he's an assistant professor at Reszow, uh, a university in Poland. And uh, perhaps you can introduce yourself. I'm an archaeologist by profession, but I've had a profound interest in Old Norse religion and Old Norse uh, mythology and ritual practices, and also in Old Norse literature. So my main line of research is trying to combine textual sources in archaeology and try to explore essentially the, the, the Viking mind, as some scholars would call it. Yes, I think it's uh, looking at your CV, there's uh, an impressive amount of, of literature that is, uh, to call it interdisciplinary, would almost be an understatement. And it's uh, very interesting to me that it seems to uh, touch upon a lot of what I like to call like the the numinous. You sometimes discuss an archaeology of emotion, I think, in your early works, maybe. Would you, would you mind elaborating on that, perhaps, mm -hmm. Len? Yeah, I, I have used this term, archaeology of emotions, because uh, I like to try to get into uh, people's heads, into into the heads of people from, from the past by by studying what is left of them by studying objects, by um, studying burials, by, by studying preserved texts. And by combining these different sources, of course, always in a, in a, in a critical way, um, I believe it is possible to, to learn quite a lot about, uh, about the, the emotions of those people, about their feelings, their beliefs, their everyday life, the, their idea about death and afterlife. On many many different things. Quite recently, you finished a PhD about magical staffs. 
And uh, I don't know if listeners are aware of this, but there have been a lot of discussion regarding a uh, a specific kind of object found in many uh, female burials. A lot of them from Norway, but they're found all over Scandinavia. Not on Iceland, I understand. But they might be associated with a specific ritual specialist called uh, the vulva and uh, may be used in association with uh, the magical act of seder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. I, I, I finished my PhD in 2012. I did it at, uh, department, at the Department of Archaeology uh, at the University of Aberdeen. And uh, my supervisor, Professor Neil Price, was actually the one who, who started uh, looking at uh, magic practices in the Viking Age trying to uh, combine both textual sources and archaeology. And, and my work builds upon his very important research. Although my focus uh, specifically in, in this PhD thesis was on, uh, on the one hand, on, on, on the objects uh, that, that I call magic staffs. Whereas on the other hand, I also looked at uh, a number of very strange... Uh, graves and, and funerary practices that some archaeologists uh, call deviant burials or atypical burials. Um, so just last year I, I published a, a revised version of uh, part of my, my PhD thesis which, which concerns objects that I call magic staffs and uh, they're very fascinating uh, finds and um, to most people, the, the, the term magic staff would um, immediately bring associations with, with Harry Potter and fairies and magicians and wizards and, and children's tales. But mm. uh, if you treat the topic more, more seriously, it, it appears that, uh, that the magic staff, the idea of the magic staff is, is, a, is a very old, very ancient idea. And that the first examples of staffs used for, for ritual purposes can be found already in, in the Stone Age. Yeah, uh, like that's a recurring theme when we're talking about magic uh, in today's society, that it's it's looked upon as something foolish, superstitious. But these people lived in magical worldviews where uh, this permeated their, you know, their their view of reality. Yeah, it was part of yeah. part of their reality, and they they did not distinguish between this world and the other world, and all these different realities, so to say, were overlapping. Yeah, and it was no joke. We 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 only have to look at uh, many societies today where this is uh, this is uh, a facet of reality that uh, that is uh, treated with utmost respect. To them, magic was real, hmm. and it was something that could be effectively used to to different ends, really, to uh, for, for positive things, for negative things, for ambivalent things. And we find we find tangible traces of these different beliefs and and practices in the archaeological record. And as an archaeologist, I'm very interested in in exploring this evidence and also trying to uh, better understand it. I guess. So these um, these magical staffs. What what are their funerary contexts and what do they look like? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the first thing we should we should say is that uh, about forty finds that could be labeled as magic staffs are known from from Viking Age uh, archaeology. Uh, and they are usually found, as you said, in so-called funerary contexts, that is, in graves. And uh, the graves are scattered all around the, the Viking world, but most of the graves with, with staffs 
actually come from Norway. And today we are sitting in, in Bergen and just a couple of hundred meters from here is, is uh, the University Museum, which has actually the largest collection, archaeological collection of objects that can be interpreted uh, quite plausibly as magic staffs. Um, but in the Viking Age, the, they um, had many purposes. They were used for for various um, for various acts and various rituals, um, and they were also buried uh, at the end of their use uh, with with probably with their original users in in different kinds of graves. Um, there are essentially two categories of of graves that can be distinguished in the Viking Age. Uh, the first one are so-called cremation graves, that is, graves of people who were burnt. Their cremated remains are are placed in one way or another in the ground. And in these graves we also find um, magic staffs, but also uh, inhumation graves, that is, graves where people are buried unburned. So the whole body is placed inside a inside a grave pit or in a in a chamber, sometimes on a boat in all sorts of ways and again these objects interpreted as magic staffs are are found in, in graves of this type but uh, I guess you would ask what the magic staffs look like uh, what what are their material forms um, they come in various forms and they come in various shapes and sizes uh, generally uh, you can distinguish two sort of basic types uh, there are staffs made of iron and there are staffs made of uh, made of wood. The iron examples are, are the sort of most exciting ones uh, for for the modern eye. They are often beautifully decorated. They have copper alloy knobs. Um, they sometimes have animal uh, shaped decoration. Um, so they were definitely very difficult objects to produce in the first place. Probably quite expensive. Um, and also endowed with very rich symbolism. They, they referred to a lot of ideas and concepts uh, in, within the Viking mind and the Viking world. Well, you, you briefly touched upon the fact that these uh, have some association with uh, what we call deviant burials. Yes, uh, the term deviant burial essentially refers to... Uh, a form of treating the dead uh, that is unusual. So um, some of the staffs have been found in, in graves that are in one way or another different from what is found in a particular cemetery at a particular time in a, at a particular spot. And uh, my, my studies of staffs and graves with staffs have actually led me to a new strand of, of, of my research that is on on other variants of unusual, uncommon, rare uh, types of graves. And uh, I have looked at uh, cases that that are quite bizarre or, or odd. Um, so, for example, cases when people are buried with large stones placed over their bodies. Or cases when uh, there's a body uh, that that is lacking the head or cases when an individual is buried on their belly, face down. And I, I have spent quite a lot of time trying to first gather a corpus of all these different graves to understand how they, uh, 
how they differ um, across space and time, but also to to interpret what what could they mean? Why would you uh, decapitate someone, or why would you place a large stone over a dead person, or why would you bury someone facing the ground? Yeah, some of these are really fascinating, and they they get really morbid. Uh, I I think I can quote Neil Price when I. I met him at a conference a few years ago and we discussed this, you know, creepy feeling you get when you work with these burials and uh, he would not want to travel back to that area. It would be very shocking to most of us. And uh, that's, I, I think, in an age where um, part of, you know, when we discuss Vikings, especially in terms of contemporary identity, you know, you want, and that's also a scholarly issue, I think, that people want to... Um, associate themselves with especially in Norway where it's a bit a question of ancestry you don't want them to have qualities maybe that you do not want to be associated with I, I, I fully agree with with uh, Neil Price and uh, with his claim that that some things that happened in the Viking Age would have been strange uh, for us today or, or creepy uh, and indeed, some of those graves are uh, creepy by by modern standards, um, but they are also very interesting. And um, when when we explore them as archaeologists or as textual scholars, we can actually learn uh, by examining them carefully. Learn a lot about the society that sort of produced them. Um, you asked if I have my favorites. I, I don't know if this is the the right word, but there are certainly certainly some examples that are that are very interesting and that that have been puzzling me for for quite some time. Um, I guess one one example that has also uh, become quite known in uh, in archaeology, but also in popular culture, um, because I collaborate with. Uh, with an artist who has created a, a beautiful artistic reconstruction of this grave at the time of burial. Uh, it's a grave that that was found uh, a couple of years ago uh, in Denmark um, at a place called Trekroner Brudehoi, um, which is in in Zealand, not so far from uh, from Roskilde. Uh, it was one of the richest graves in this cemetery, um, and what happened uh, was that the local community they dug uh, a pretty deep and wide uh, burial pit and they buried uh, a woman who was an adult at the time of death um, around her they placed uh, all sorts of objects uh, a chest and a bucket uh, but also in the course of the funeral they slaughtered animals and it's not uncommon to to slaughter animals during funerals but the way they did it here um, was quite unusual. Uh, one of the animals was a dog, and the dog was uh, cut in half, bisected, and laid at the woman's feet. They also slaughtered a horse, and they placed this horse in the grave in such a way that part of the horse's body covered the body of that of that woman. Mm. Um, and the, one of the s most striking aspects of this grave was yet another object placed uh, by her side, um, which was uh, an object that looks very much like a little arrowhead or a, or a spearhead. It is made of copper alloy, but it has a, an iron tip at, at the end. Um, 
it probably had a wooden shaft, so it looked very much like a little arrow, or I would argue something like even a magic staff, implying that perhaps this woman had something to do with, uh, with magic. But this was not the end of the, the funeral, and the things that happened after laying the, the horse over her body were, were quite dramatic by today's standards. Um, so the people responsible for the funeral, they brought very large stones, which they then threw or, or laid over the woman's body and over the horse, essentially crushing everything that was in the grave. And then, the way I imagine it, uh, this group of people uh, gathered around the grave, um, took stones and started throwing little stones and pebbles inside the grave, filling it up um, until they finally filled it with soil. So in a sense, you could argue that they performed some kind of act of post-mortem stoning. And this is interesting when we look at it from uh, from the perspective of uh, literary, textual accounts, Old Norse sagas, because in, in quite a few sagas, uh, sagas of the Icelanders, um, written in Old Norse, um, there are accounts of sorcerers who are performing this malevolent magic, seidr, as you mentioned earlier, mm. and one of the ways of... Uh, dealing with them and punishing them for performing this magic was actually by stoning them to death, which was often followed by also placing stones over their bodies and burying these people in, in uh, isolated liminal location like, lo locations like mountain ridges or beaches and so on. Mm. It sounds very extreme to us, you know. But these people were treated with, it seems, as much respect as suspicion. Yes, yeah. th there is certainly uh, a sense of ambivalence. And uh, my, my doctoral thesis from, from Aberdeen from 2012 had this word ambivalence in the title. And as you say, on the one hand, uh, these, these ritual specialists, they were respected and needed, essential in the society. People would ask them for advice, for help. Uh, but at the same time, they aroused a sense of fear and, uh, and people may have felt uncomfortable in their presence uh, in, in different ways. Do you have any uh, cross-cultural parallels to this? Uh, yes, of course, there's, there's quite a few cross-cultural parallels and uh, we, we can look at other ritual specialists in, in other cultures and we often find them to be perceived in the same kind of ambivalent way, both um, revered and sort of hated at the same time. Uh, a lot of shamans in, uh, in traditional societies were also perceived in this, uh, in this way. Um, so yes, this is, this is, of course, this Viking magic is part of a, a much bigger, broader picture. Mm. Well, yeah, you've... Uh one thing that I've noticed a lot with your publications is the elaborate use of illustrations and reconstruction drawings. Mm -hmm. When I was um, studying, you know, and actually before I started studying, I, I as you know, I did Viking reenactment and stuff like that, and it was so hard to to uh, to get hold of proper materials that showed, uh, you know, line drawings of artifacts, and I also lacked uh, an artist's eye depicting mm -hmm. and making this stuff alive but uh, now this has become so much more easy you know just to, uh, with your work do you want to say something about the yeah uh, the benefits of this 
sure, in uh, your work? I, I use a lot of uh, art or visual art. I've been collaborating uh, for quite some time now with, uh, with a Polish artist whose name is Mirosław Kuzma. Uh, he's an illustrator, um, a very talented, uh, a talented uh, man. And uh, what we are doing in, in our collaborative work, we are trying to uh, create artistic uh, reconstructions of graves as they may have appeared at the time of burial using available archaeological evidence. Uh, so we refer to uh, published uh, information about particular graves. So we take into consideration the plan of the grave, the position of the body, the arrangement of objects around the body, uh, the objects themselves, and we sort of, if it's a inhumation grave where where there's a skeleton preserved, we sort of try to flesh the bones and uh, and dress them and and try to recreate what it may have appeared uh, the grave at the time of uh, at the time of burial, and it's uh, it's a difficult process. It uh, it takes quite some time to create a reconstruction like this. You also have to be uh, very careful. Uh, a lot of questions arise because it is often the case that um, we don't know what the person uh, buried in a particular grave looked like. We we are not always able to reconstruct, for example, the, the face or the hairstyle or the clothing. These are things that are unavailable, unaccessible to us because yes, of be. matters of preservation. Mm. So we kind of have to imagine them in one way or another and there is a lot of licencia poetica or, or artistic license in in these reconstructions but we try to be as careful and as precise as we can uh, we have made a, a reconstruction of uh, of this danish grave today that i talked about earlier and this involved uh, visiting the museum in roskilde talking to its original excavator uh, dr jens ulriksen from from that museum he took us to the site. He discussed uh, discussed the results of his work because it is his from his excavations. Uh, he showed us the finds from the grave, and all this ensured that this reconstruction now is probably one of the most careful, most precise reconstructions that that we have made so far. Well, that's an amazingly elaborate process. It's uh, uh, it's much more than. Uh than you would originally think when you see the drawing. It's mm -hmm. uh, these. I'll probably try to, if I if I may, add some in the show notes mm -hmm. and uh, definitely yeah, provide course. some links. No, no problem. <laughs> this, um, but these are these are really great, and I think that uh, they uh, open uh, new doors to a lot of people uh, educationally. Yes, I I use them in in my lectures. I I use them in my in my articles. Uh, they definitely one thing that they they help to see is they 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 help to, to illustrate the uniqueness of uh, of a certain grave of a certain burial practice uh, even though as I said we have to sort of imagine their physical appearance the physical appearance of, yeah. of the dead uh, we add a certain sense of identity and a sense of uniqueness and in individuality to to these people and uh, in a way through these illustrations we can tell something about their lives. We can tell, retell, uh, recreate their stories. Something about their life and something about their death as well. 
it's very humanizing i think it's, it's something completely different than seeing just uh skeletons and uh yes. and seeing human remains in that uh, of course of course uh we are also aware of all sorts of ethical issues that these reconstructions um evoke um, mm. on the one hand well we are we are dealing with a sensitive sensitive topic because we are essentially reconstructing death yeah. um, which is a very sensitive topic and it was definitely a sensitive topic in the past as well um maybe uh, i often think about that maybe we we shouldn't do it maybe these people should not be shown or exposed as they are as they are in our reconstructions um but by doing that uh, we as as archaeologists as academics are are trying to tell their story and sort of remember them and yeah. for the people of the past especially people of the viking age this idea of remembrance uh, this lasting story the name that is mm. remembered for ages was was very important so perhaps in this way we are sort of paying back the debt for for digging them up in the first place while conducting excavations yeah that's that's a that's a huge philosophical uh, issue <laughs> that's, that's, in contemporary archaeology yeah. you know the ethics of exhuming i, I dead, think you know? it, we have to be very respectful um, yeah. And uh, you don't see it often in, in archaeology. It's digging up graves and removing bones is part of the archaeological practice. But I think it's 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 important to to spare a thought when we do this to think about the that the bones that we find were once part of a, a living, breathing uh, human. And and certainly in my work, I try to whenever I excavate graves or I I I. I deal with bones uh, I, I like to spare a thought and think about the individual um, I think it's they deserve that uh, I think and and the same uh, goes for for objects buried with the dead especially objects that must have been very personal objects such as jewelry or amulets or magic staffs these were certainly objects infused with meanings and emotions mm. objects that maybe the dead uh, would not want anyone to, to 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 touch, and yet we yeah. are touching them today. We are displaying them in museums. Um, modern reenactors are replicating them. Um, it's a process that cannot be stopped, but it's something that uh, should be debated, discussed, and sort of thought about in in this ethical context. I agree, and especially when uh, I guess it applies to all such context but especially when you're working with these uh, so-called deviant burials where mm -hmm. you're uh, talking about potentially people who are uh, sometimes they might have been unwanted by society mm -hmm. you're talking about people who might have been aboard you know and uh, where the context appears extremely dramatic but this is also i think it's very interesting in uh, in a wider like uh, I, I can kind of relate to this in a, in a very bizarre way. Um, I have a friend who uh, uh, who gave me access. I had to, I had once I had to sleep in in a bed, you know, in a in a room in an attic once, and which an old lady had lived in, and presumably she had died there. Mm. And um, she left behind uh, a lot of objects uh, that were really strange and peculiar to to see and behold and uh, I, I touched a few of them you know there were clothes there still there was uh, her you know dentures were still left behind mm. 
and uh, pictures of of loved ones and these are these are things that people cherish they they are not items that people parade around they are intimate objects and though the specific memories elude us mm. uh, it was very weird to to handle these you know uh, and I very much felt like this was a, an example of a contemporary archaeology where I was in the presence of of a story that I partly could attempt to reconstruct mm -hmm. uh, with uh, objects that had belonged to a deceased person. Certainly a very strange place to sleep. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I guess you have that in like the sagas it. as well, people sleeping in burial chambers and uh, whatnot. It wasn't as extreme, luckily, but uh, well, yeah, uh, I think maybe that concludes uh, the interview. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you for this opportunity and thank you for an interesting discussion. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this very first episode of the Brute Norse podcast. I may be the engine of BruteNorse.com, but you, my audience, is the fuel that keeps the engine running. If you like my content, you can help by sharing it or supporting me on Patreon. It's a monthly subscription, and you can donate as much or as little as you like. This allows me to cover production fees and enables me to create more varied and higher quality content. Otherwise, you can help me by providing feedback and comments. Brute Norse is nothing without you. Again, this is Eirik Storesund, and thank you for listening. Yeah.